you are listening to the Sermon Podcast at Bethel. We're an evangelical covenant church located in western Wisconsin outside of Ellsworth, and you can find out more about us on our website, BethelCov.org. My name is Todd Speaker. I'm the pastor here, and thank you for listening. So as we uh, have been going through Acts and we've kind of come to this last uh, section of Acts, um, we've been uh, following Paul, who's, who's, follow, who's going with the Holy Spirit. And, and as he follows the voice of the Holy Spirit, we find that he is like, uh, everywhere he goes, he's sort of crashing into things. Uh, so last week, uh, we talked about how uh, when Paul came into town, he crashed into um, these different forces of evil and how uh, they resisted him and how sometimes... Uh, when you're following, uh, oftentimes people of faith hope and think that uh, if we follow God, it means our life is going to go smoothly. Uh, but, but Paul shows us, Acts shows us that oftentimes when we are following the voice of the Spirit, it can lead to uh, conflict, to, to crashing, to, to bumps in the road. And so this week, um, we're going to see what happens when uh, Paul comes into a new place and he's going to uh, he's gonna crash into um, people's idea of God. Uh, their idea of, of faith, their, their religion. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this happens to us all the time because all of us have a picture of, of God in, in our head, um, you know, and, and maybe you don't think hard about it. Some people, like when I was, when I was growing up, uh, I think when I look back to when I was a kid, the picture of God in my head was um, what I like to call the clipboard God. Uh, so uh, God... God was like this. Uh, he, had a, he had a clipboard, and he had a pen, and he was watching to make sure that I was checking all the boxes with, with my life, right? Uh, I was a good church kid. I went to church. I gave my life to, to Jesus when I was a little kid, and so that's a good, nice, big check. Um, I went to church. Most Sundays, we were part of a, a church plant, and um, that was not by choice, but every, every day as a kid from when I was a little boy to I grew up, I was at church pretty near every Sunday, and it was a church plant, so I was setting up chairs, and so check, oh, way to go, Todd, you check that one off, or, or uh, you know, and when I was a kid growing up, I thought, you know, it's really important that I spend some time praying, uh, and, I, and I imagine God saying, you know, Todd, you're not praying enough, oh, did you pray, oh, you prayed enough, there's, there's a check mark, so that was, that was one way that I looked at God as a kid. Sometimes our image of God uh, is like, um, the, like, the, um, like the rich uncle God. I have, a, I have a good friend that I went to college with uh, who had a, a rich aunt and uncle, and his amazing, wonderful, lovely, rich aunt would send him, just send him money every month for no reason. Like, this is, you want to get family like this. Does anybody have family? And, and she'd just like, he'd open a little, a bird, you know, it'd be a card. Every month he'd get a greeting card, and there'd be a hundred bucks in there. I remember thinking, man, where is my rich and uh, some people think of God like that. Uh, God's this nice guy that cares about you, that wants your life to go good. And so you, as you're living your life, God might send you uh, cards every once in a while, blessings. And, and we think God ought to be like a rich uncle. If I'm being an okay person, he's going to bless me periodically. But here's my life, and, and the uncle lives in another state. He cares about me, but, but they don't intersect except in, in blessing. Uh, some people, and, and we're going to run into people like this a little bit, um, and, and a lot of the founding fathers thought of God this way, um, like, uh, like a watchmaker. They, they talked about him. Um, God is a watchmaker. He made the world a perfect, beautiful system. Uh, he wound up the watch, got everything going, got the animals moving, got the people moving, got the nations established. 
He wound up the watch. This is the old days when you used to have to wind watches. And he, and he hit start, and he walked away. God made the world. He set it all up. Uh, he got it going. Thank you, creator. And now uh, he's going to go do his own thing, and we're going to do our thing. Uh, oftentimes, uh, the word for that is, is deism. But we all have different ideas, different pictures in our head of God. Sometimes it's the clipboard God who's, who's either watching you do good things or waiting for you to get out of line so he can stomp on you. Or the rich uncle God who wants to give you good things, but, you know, not, not too much else. Or the watchmaker God that, you know, thank you, did a great job getting everything started, but he's not involved in our lives now. Um, and I remember um, the first time um, my image of God was, was changed, was kind of um, wrecked or messed with a little bit, was when I was in high school, I went to a, I went to a, a youth retreat that we've sent kids to before, Covenant High in Christ, it was called at the time. Uh, and I remember um, for the very first time um, realizing that um, following Jesus and being a Christian um, was about more than just checking off boxes. He talked about, the speaker at the time, uh, talked about following Jesus as more like knowing a person and being close to them. That uh, faith was less about good deeds and being perfect and making sure that everything lined up uh, uh, than it was like pushing through the crowds to, to get as close to Jesus as possible. Less about what you do and more about who uh, you're with. And I remember for me, it, it really messed with me because I had spent so much time trying to be, um, trying to check those boxes, to not mess up, to be enough. And it was a very emotional moment when that was, that image was, was shattered and, and replaced with something else. Well, that's what our scripture is about today. So Paul is going to walk into town and he's going to start crashing into the ideas at the time. Uh, so in our scripture, um, the spirit leads Paul further from home than ever. Uh, to a town called Athens, uh, and Athens was known for lots of things, but what Paul noticed was that it was filled with idols, we're going to talk about those, and it was filled with a lot of smart people that love nothing more than to sit around and talk about God and philosophy and what life was all about. And so Paul, uh, uh, you know, the, the born and raised Jewish man who was taught idols uh, represent just the, the epitome of evil, uh, is walking into a town full of idols, uh, full of people that think totally different than him. Uh, and you actually can, you can see it a little bit in verse, in verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Uh, if you're a, a good Jewish kid growing up, really the, the very first box on the, on the checklist is, is don't worship idols. And so Paul goes into a place and he looks, and it's just full of the worst example of, of evil to him. Um, but for some reason, the Spirit led Paul here. And so Paul follows the Spirit into this place. And, and when he's here in Athens, he's going he's gonna to crash into their pictures. Um, and so, uh, but I wanted to set the stage just, just a little bit, um, because we all have these images. I want to talk about... Um, the ideas about God that people in Athens had. These are a few ideas. Just like today, you couldn't explain uh, what everybody thinks in a community like Ellsworth. And in Athens, there were many philosophies, many beliefs, many ideas. But here are kind of three, three main ones. And so first, uh, to set the stage, this is like their world. We've got the, the idol worshipers. This, is, um, this group is kind of um, represented by just, these are sort of regular people 
This is you know, maybe the regular uh, religious person in Athens. Uh, most people in this category just, um, they had a job, they were trying to get through life and survive, uh, but their faith involved um, worshiping these idols. If you're an idol worshiper, what you do um, once a week or a few times a week, maybe once a month, you want to make sure that the gods aren't going to mess up your plans uh, or that they're going to make things go okay for you. You know, you don't think about faith very often, uh, but what you do know is this, that number one, the gods, uh, and they were a, a, poly, uh, a polytheistic uh, religion, uh, the gods are hungry. What, am I, what I mean by this is that uh, if you were just a regular person in Athens, the thing you thought about faith was that there are all of these spiritual forces in the world, and, and they, um, they have lots of power, uh, but they also have needs. And so um, every month, every week, you go and make a sacrifice to different idols based on what you need. You've got to feed the idol. Uh, and the goal of faith, of, of life, the goal of religion, of worship, is, is to, to get through life. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, if you were an idol worshiper in Athens, uh, the main thing you wanted from God was to um, kind of leave you alone or, or bless your endeavors. So if harvest was coming up, you'd come and make an offering to the God of the harvest. If you wanted to have, uh, have kids, you'd, you'd come and make an offering uh, to the, the goddess of fertility, right? If you need something, the gods are hungry, so you come and, and number three, what do you do as a result? So if the gods are hungry and all you want to do is just live your life and survive and get through your work and all the time, you make a deal. You make a deal with the gods. So you go to the temple. I will make an offering of, you know, of some kind of animal sacrifice or money or whatever. If you um, uh, leave me alone or help me or, or help, help things to go okay, the gods are hungry. And so the question often becomes, if, if your life is, isn't going well, is, well, have I paid enough to get the gods on my side? So that's kind of the first, the first group. And, and this is really um, the, kind of just the ordinary people. This is somebody who, who's regular, who works all day long, is just trying to get through week to week. Um, you come, and, and your faith is making sure the gods are okay with you. Okay, so that's, that's one. So th so the next group we're going to talk about are called the Epicureans. And so these next two groups, these are sort of the, the, um, the educated elite. Uh, these are the people that say, oh yeah, you know, I grew up giving sacrifices to idols, but we're smart, we're philosophers, we want to sit around and talk about ideas all day long. They have the time and the space and the money to do that. And so they start thinking, uh, thinking differently about their religion. They still uh, believe in the, in the Greek gods in, in some way, but they're, they're sort of re, rethinking it. Uh, so if idol worshipers, the gods are hungry, um, the Epicureans, they call themselves a philosophy school, uh, the gods are, are upstairs. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, the gods are really far away. Uh, Epicureans believe that if the gods were real, and most of them did believe that, uh, they were so far away, um, they didn't matter to us regular people on earth. They're, they're upstairs. We live downstairs. The gods live on the top floor, and they're not involved. They're very close to um, the watchmaker, watchmaker kind of faith, right? God made the world. Uh, the gods may have created us or whatever, but they went off to go do something else. They are so much bigger than we could ever understand. They're so much further away than we could ever 
try and please God. I mean, they would say, how crazy is it to think you could make a God happy with you? So the gods are upstairs. They're gone. They're out of the picture. <clears throat> and so if the gods are out of the picture, for an Epicurean, your goal is to um, have a happy life, to have a good life. And so uh, uh, they did number three. They dedicated their lives. They have a whole philosophy dedicated to two things, to maximizing um, happiness or pleasure and minimizing pain. And and believe it or not, uh, they, they built their whole lives around this. And you might think that that meant that they were always indulging in stuff all the time. Um, but, but the Epicureans were smart. They realized if you're always eating too much, that's actually not very good for a happy life. Um, and this um, might actually sound familiar. So they, they embraced moderation. Um, but their quote was this. If you want to understand how an Epicurean sees the world, <clears throat> this beautiful quote, uh, this, is, this sums up. They say, uh, don't fear God right? Because God's far away. Don't worry about death. What is good is easy to get, and what is terrible is easy to endure. Uh, Epicureans would have said, you know, we can't know what God wants. We can't be involved with him. God's too big, too far away for us to understand. So we might as well just try and be as comfortable, as happy as possible for as long as possible and get through life that way. So some people uh, were uh, Epicureans like that, you know, am I able to be above it all? And they would try and be uh, a little distant from life and, and not, not perturbed by the hard things and, and whatever. So that's, that's one group. The other group is kind of the opposite. Uh, so next we have the Stoics. <clears throat> and the Stoics, um, again, the, the opposite. If the Epicureans thought God was upstairs, uh, the Stoics thought God was right, right here. Now they thought God, the gods were so close as to be uh, in all of us. You know, there's, they would say there's a piece of God inside of you. Uh, part of you is divine, and your goal, uh, and, and not just part of you, but part of every part of the world has, has God in it. And so if you're a Stoic, um, if you're, the goal of your life uh, would be more to, to make your life good or to make it, to make it matter. And so they believe that there's a divine spark, there's a God in all of us, and the best thing we can do as human beings is, is try and live like it. You know, and they had a very detailed philosophy about how uh, to sort of live like a good person, and therefore you'll have a good, a good life. Um, if you make it matter, you'll have, have, a, have a good life. So just really quick, all three of them, I got all three of them up here again um, <clears throat> on that next slide. So we have our, our deal-making gods of the idol worshipers. I'm living my life, and I'm willing to pay something to either get God to help me a little bit or get God out of my way. Uh, the Epicureans, I'm living my life, and I'm going to make it as happy as possible, and God has no hold on me. He's just too big. The gods are too big, too hard to understand. It's not even worth thinking about it. And, and the Stoics... And, and some of these, I think, sound familiar to us. We've carried these through the generations. Stoics, you know, there's a little bit of God in each of us. How beautiful is that? Treat people well because there's divinity in there. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, we're all uh, pulled by these ideas still. I think um, these three ideas, along with all of our other images of God, they, they inform how we think about faith. You know, we... we we treat our God like, like a deal-making God. We say, Lord, if you get me out of this mess, I'll go to church every day forever. No one's ever prayed a prayer like that but me. Uh, or we say, uh, you know, the flip side of that is, Lord, I don't understand why this thing is happening to me, 
because I have done what I was supposed to do. We think of God as a deal maker. Sometimes we think of God as, as distant and transcendent, right? We think, Lord, thanks for this life or whatever. Uh, bless my life. I'll live it. You do you, Lord, and I'll, I'll do me. God is distant and transcendent. We can't know him. Some of us really have this, um, this uh, lean this way. And, and the Stoics, um, I think, resonate with us a little bit too. You know, um, God is inside of us, and our life's mission is to be as good as we can be. And we, and we think, if I, just, if I just get up a little earlier, if I try a little harder, uh, I'll be more like God. If I, if I climb another rung, if I make a bigger sacrifice, I'll, I'll finally have arrived at being this good person. If I work really hard, if only uh, other people studied and prayed and worshipped as hard as I did, they would know what I know and they'd be good like me. Uh, so, so this is what's going on in their world, and I think we can all identify a little piece of our own images in this. And maybe yours is different, or maybe it's a combination of these things, but these ideas are old uh, because they, they catch us. You know, is God out to make a deal? Is God impossibly far away? Or is God uh, right inside of us? So Paul is going to crash into this in, in Athens. So here comes, here comes the, the wrecking ball. And so you'll notice something as Paul comes in. Remember, he's disturbed by the idols, but instead of turning his back on the people of Athens, he does something amazing that I think we can take a lesson uh, from as Christians. He looks uh, and he keeps his eyes open as big as possible, and he tries to find uh, anything good in, in what he sees in Athens. He, he looks so hard. Instead of walking away, he's, he's thinking, what can I affirm? And then uh, He'll find that. He'll highlight that in this text. And then he'll also say, look at this. You believe this. It's true. Uh, but here's what's, what's missing. Uh, you'll see a lot of Paul saying, yes, but what about this? There's something new. There's something bigger. And so he comes into their world, and he tries to speak their language, just like uh, God tries to speak our language, comes to us where we're at, and says, maybe there's something more. So uh, 16, uh, he's distressed by the idols. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Paul enters town, starts talking about Jesus, and suddenly we, we get our Epicureans and our Stoics. This is a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Um, they began to debate with him. Uh, so they're going back and forth. They're interested in what Paul has to say. Uh, some of them asked him and, and said this, and they're, they're, they think he's kind of, kind of dumb and crazy. And they say, well, what's this battler trying to say? Others remarked, oh, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Uh, so this is a moment like last week. Um, the, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they're sort of coming together, and, and it looks like it's going bad places because it's, it's bad to bring foreign gods. They think Paul's just talking, talking words. Um, it's, it says that they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so things are getting a little heated. And so they take Paul and they bring him to, uh, to a meeting to discuss these ideas further. It's not quite a trial, but it's, it's kind of like that. Um, and they bring him to the Aeropagus. <laughs> I never tried reading this out loud. Aeropagus. That's not how you say that. Uh, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. Here's your chance, Paul. Tell us what you're, what you're saying. Because you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. 
and we would like to know what they mean. It continues a, a little note from, from Luke, the author of Acts. He says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there uh, spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And so, it's a little reminder. Um, this is Luke's kind of being mean. He's saying, all these Athenians, all they want to do is sit around and talk. <laughs> but Paul stands up in the meeting of that place and says, people of Athens, and this is his first grab on. He takes the worst thing he sees, but, but he grabs onto it. He says, noticing the idols, he says, I see that in every way you are very religious. <laughs> You know, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Paul, uh, the, the Jewish man who, who should, who was raised to just utterly condemn them right at that moment, says, I can see that you care about God and the universe. He says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. He says, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and that's what I'm going to proclaim to you. This is Paul. This is his kind of his kind of yes, his yes and. He says, you, you clearly want to know who God is. So much so that I found a, an altar to a God that you don't know about. Paul says, let me tell you about the God that you don't know about. He continues in verse 24. He says, the God who made the world, and you can see as we're reading this, that he, he touches on each of these people. So the deal-making, uh, the deal-making gods, the idol worshippers, he says, I can see that you want to get this right. Uh, so he'll, he'll continue. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He says, let me tell you about this unknown God. He says, Epicureans, you are right. God does not fit in a statue or in a temple. He's not built and served by people. God doesn't need anything. He says, Epicureans, you're right. God doesn't need anything from us. In fact, uh, God from one man made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed time and history and the boundaries of their lands. Um, and now he, here's how he says, so Epicureans, you're right. God's too big. He doesn't need anything. But, uh, verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. He says, Epicureans, you're, you're right. God is big, bigger than our imagination. He's powerful and he needs nothing, but you think God can't be known, but the truth is God did this so that he might be known. He continues in verse 28, and he actually quotes, um, he quotes um, a, a, a Stoic. <laughs> this is good. He says, he says, for in God, in him, we live and move and have our being. He says, Stoics, you're right. You can't throw a rock without encountering God. Not only is God big and far and vast and unknowable, he's also right here. Uh, Paul says, you can't live and move and be a person without running into God. That sounds like Stoicism. God is right here. He's all over. 
he continues, as some of your own poets have said, he's, he's talking to the Stoics, um, we are his offspring. He takes that, that uh, Jewish idea made in the image of God and says, we are his offering. You're right, Stoics. And then he continues, verse 29, he says, therefore, if we're God's offspring, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image made by human design and skill. He goes back to the deal makers, right? The, the idol worshipers. He says, since we're God's offspring and we're not made of, of stone, <laughs> we're not carried around, uh, we're not our own makers, God is our maker, how could we possibly imagine that we could make God with our hands, with silver and stone? And he, he continues, this is in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Your unknown God saw he overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. We've talked about this word repent a ton in church. What does repent mean? Does anybody remember? Turn. Yeah, he says turn. So, so you're going one way. You're thinking about the world one way. You've lived your whole life in one direction. Uh, and, and it's not that you need to say sorry for that. It's that you literally need to repent of that direction to turn and to go a different way. He says, uh, God wants you to turn to him, the unknown God that you can know. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from, from the dead. So Paul says, Epicureans, you know, not only does God want to be known, God cares that we know him. And so turn and follow him. Turn and know him. Stoics, not only um, is God close by, he's also impossibly big, and he, in fact, isn't in us, but we are in him. And then his, his last line, it, it alienates everybody, because <laughs> he, um, he says, God has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, for all three of these groups, none of them believed in the resurrection or in any kind of physical life after death. And so we'll see that even though he walked that way and got some of them along, many others were, were totally turned off by this, and they cut him off. It says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the place, and uh, also a woman named Damaris and, and a number of others. Uh, so, so here's, here's what we did. He walked in here, and he, he found the good, and he said, but there's, there's more, right? So to the idol worshipers, Paul says, yes, God is here. He's involved in every aspect of the life of regular people. Yes, God wants to uh, deal with you, to have a relationship with you. Let me tell you about who that God is. And he says to the idol worshipers, uh, God doesn't need to make a deal with you. He doesn't need anything. He's not hungry for what you can give. God doesn't need your sacrifices. He's bigger than your statues and your temples. God doesn't need your worship and your gifts, but he does want you. Now, maybe, uh, maybe I'm alone in this, but many of us, uh, at least for me, that grew up in the church, that are connected with God, we think about God needing something from us our prayers, our Bible reading, our worship, we think, we think God's like Santa Claus, that like if enough people don't believe him and hard enough, he'll disappear. Uh, but that, that, that's not true. He says, you know, the idol-making gods, God is not hungry for anything. All he wants is you turn and follow. 
to the Epicureans, he says, yes. God is bigger than you can imagine. He's impossibly big. He's impossibly hard to capture in our minds. He's bigger than temples and idols and plans and schemes and worries. God is bigger than our ideas about life on earth. God is bigger than our imagination, Epicureans. You are right. But he's also close. He's not too far. He wants to be known. He desires us to know him. And he built everything so that we would. And eventually, he came down in person, in the person of Jesus Christ, so that we might know an unknowable God. Some of us are like the Epicureans. When we think about faith, we think, I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine it's possible uh, to understand anything about God. And so to those of us in, in our holy agnostic ignorance, Paul says, no, you can know God because you can know Jesus. And finally, to the Stoics, Paul says, you are right. God is right here. He's near. He's so close to us that we live and move and have our being in God. But we are not God. Uh, it's less that there's a little bit of God in us, Paul says, but instead, maybe we can be in him. Repent. Turn. Paul says to them, and he says to us in our incomplete pictures, yes, your unknown God is real. You are right to make room for him, but that unknown God is bigger than you can imagine. That unknown God is the maker and sustainer of everything. He's closer to you than you realize, deeply involved in this world, and, and he has no need for the stuff that we might offer God. Instead, uh, he just wants to know us. Uh, so the, the next slide, this is the, the, simple, the simple line that Paul wants to, wants to communicate about this, this truth. And this is, this is new for all three of those groups. And I think if we're honest, sometimes it's new for us. This is what Paul's trying to say. He's saying there is a living, active, involved God who you can know. God is a, a person that you can actually know. Uh, a person that can surprise you, that can change your mind, that actually doesn't need anything from you but wants things for you. And that person, that living God, commands us to turn away from our other pictures, our other ideas, our incomplete images, our comfortable uh, faith, and turn towards the person of Jesus in whom we can know what God looks like, in, uh, who rose from the dead, and who promises that those in him will rise from the dead too. God is always bigger than the pictures that we come up with. And I think sometimes we forget that just like he was bigger than theirs, he needs to be bigger than ours. There is a living, personal, enormous God who is revealed in Christ and will break out of your boxes if you let him. And that God is bringing back to life a dead world, 
and dead lives. He's offering resurrection and inviting us to join him because God is always bigger. So we're invited to repent of our idols, our images, our wrong pictures, to walk away from the other things we devote ourselves to in order to get, nothing, to get something, to walk away from anything that serves as a God in our life, even our deeply cherished ideas about God. And because of Jesus, we can embrace the person of God who though he didn't need us, who though we couldn't possibly give him anything, chased after us because he made us and loves us. We're invited to let that bigger God shatter our illusions, our boxes, and make us new. Would you pray with me? Lord God, so often we settle for an idea about you and we neglect our connection to you. Sometimes we settle for good conversations and good ideas and perfect logical systems. We pour ourselves into them. We pour ourselves into good behavior and good thinking and good doing. Or maybe we just pour ourselves into trying to live as happy a life as possible. But as we're trying to create this image of who you are, as we're trying to know and understand and hold on to you, Lord, you are inviting us to know you like we know a person. You're a father and you love us. So, Lord, we turn away from our sin and the ways that we have walked away. And we turn towards you because your own son, your own image, the perfect picture of the invisible God died for our sin and rose again on our behalf. We pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you would make us new. In your name, amen. Amen? Amen. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward. Let's conclude our service in praise. Thanks for joining us. You can find out more about our church, our live stream, and our in-person services at BethelCove.org. Thanks and have a great week.